Amen. Thank you so much, worship team, creating this space for us to just be able to just connect with God and just to come and refresh and reset and refocus regardless of what our weeks looked like, uh, whether it was filled with uh, anxiety or stress or just chaos, or perhaps you're getting back from vacation and it was just a season of relaxation, or perhaps the vacation wasn't relaxing and now you're back to a routine wherever you find yourself today. I'm just glad that you were here and worshiping with us. If this is your first time visiting, my name is Jordan. I am our online pastor and one of our teaching pastors here at Crossbridge and have the privilege of continuing our summer study through the book of Jonah. And each week for the month of July, for the first four weeks, we are walking through one chapter each week of the minor prophet Jonah, minor because it is smaller in, quali- in, in co- quantity, but not in quality. That's literally the only difference between minor and major prophets in the Old Testament. But Jonah comes toward the end of the Old Testament, and what the job of the prophet was, was to go into the world and to proclaim the news that God had given them, or the word that God had given them. And it wasn't a desirable job. It was exhausting because we didn't have Teslas where you could drive or trains or airports where you could fly where you needed to go. You would walk by foot, perhaps by camel or different uh, livestock to get where you needed to be to preach the news that God had given you. And we've been in this series, The Journey of Jonah, for the first two weeks, one week each chapter. And last week I shared that, um, you know, wherever you find yourself on whether you believe that the book of Jonah was a real event that happened, uh, where Jonah was swallowed by this large fish and then vomited out onto dry land and then commanded to go to one of the most evil places in the world to declare that God is king— Or if you find yourself believing that it is allegory, drawing us towards something different, something bigger, and similar to how Jesus would teach in parables, where parables uh, in the New Testament were these exaggerated stories that Jesus would tell to kind of direct our focus or direct our attention uh, towards something bigger and different than what was going on. Wherever you find yourself, don't get caught up in that debate because there's so much theology or the study of God here in this text that we can learn from and listen from and then apply to our lives. And Brad kind of uh, kicked us off with this uh, felt board. Oh, we lost the fishies. Uh, Felt board in week number one. And honestly, this was just going to be a one-week thing. But why would you make this just a one-week thing? And so we are going to continue. Yeah, we got some claps in the back. We're going to continue this uh, felt board thing. We're going to keep the same seven figures that there are. Um, Piper made this. She spent way too many hours for us. Uh, And again, we don't understand the science, but we can still apply it to our life on how this works. But it's the coolest thing ever. Okay? And so week number one, Brad kind of walked us through what happens in chapter one of the book of Jonah. Okay, this is Jonah, and this is supposed to be this really evil place known as Nineveh. I know you can't tell this is evil by the picture Brad picked out. Okay, it looks pretty nice to vacation at. And these are the nice people of Nineveh. Again, not replica, not, not, not applicable to the Bible story because they're supposed to look evil and they look really happy. But anyway, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. And instead, 
um, of doing so because he realizes how uh, treacherous this place is, how evil um, they were known for their, their killing and their abuse and their, and their uh, plundering and how they treated people. Um, it was just a wretched, a wretched place to be. And so he goes in the opposite direction on a boat. And then the people of the boat start panicking because Jonah is in the stern sleeping and the waves start going crazy. And a storm comes and, and starts rocking the boat. Don't rock the boat. Don't rock the boat, babe. See, last week I quoted Taylor Swift for my millennials. This week I'm quoting, I don't even know the song or the artist, but um, <laughs> some song from the 60s for my boomer friends. There we go. Um, and so they throw him overboard into this giant fish, and I'm sure there's a few guppies around it. So that was week one, okay? Last week, we then spent time where, and take these off, okay? Jonah's just chilling with the fishies, okay? Isn't that so cool? And uh, just chilling in the belly of the fish, and he spends this time praying to God. And here's what's so interesting about this prayer that we talked about last week. is not a single time does Jonah actually repent or actually ask for forgiveness. It's a really odd prayer where he does spend some time quoting different psalms in the Old Testament and different scriptures and praising God, but he doesn't actually ask God for forgiveness for going in the opposite direction of where God called him to go. God still honors the prayer, though, and he ends up spitting him out onto dry land. Now, here's what's so important, and this is kind of some history that I, I want to share with you, um, uh, ju just to, you know, help you understand what it was like to be a prophet. Let's find our little, little board. Okay, so Nineveh was way over here, all right? Where Jonah started was a place called Joppa, which is somewhere about here, okay? Actually, I have a Jonah. There we go. Got a Jonah right there, all right? The distance where Jonah originally started in chapter 1 from where Jonah was in Joppa to all the way in Nineveh was anywhere from 400 to 600 miles away, all right? So this distance is about 400 to 600 miles. Again, by foot that Jonah originally would have had to walk. We don't know 100% of where the exact locations were. Jonah decides to get on the boat and go the opposite direction, about 3,000 miles away to where Tarshish was in Spain, okay, on the Mediterranean Sea, way over here. Now, he obviously didn't make it that far because he was spit out somewhere in the Mediterranean Sea. But why it's fascinating to know is we've seen maybe the VeggieTales movie or we've seen, uh, you know, in our minds of when the, the whale spit out Jonah and we think he just kind of landed right at the walls of Nineveh, but that's not possible. And you might be thinking, well, a lot of this story isn't physically possible. So sure, the whale, or not whale, the large fish could have launched Jonah thousands of miles across dry land to get to Nineveh. But what was more likely was that the large fish just launched him onto dry land somewhere around. And even if they made it back to Joppa where he started, he still had 400 to 600 miles to walk to get to Nineveh. Now, why do I point this out, and why is this significant? One, because I think God is pretty humorous, okay, in just all of this situation and in this story, is where Jonah, after he realizes the mistake and the regret and the pain that he is, he still has to walk in that tension for 400 to 600 miles to get to where he is going. And, like I said, the life of the prophet isn't desirable, okay? 
It's one of sacrifice and exhaustion. Scholars, biblical scholars use kind of this metric of being able to walk 18 to 23 miles a day. That was kind of what was a, a little average or a little above average for different individuals and different prophets. And so if you think if this was 400 to 600 mile journey, at the nearest point of where they could have uh, kind of spit him out, okay, even if it was 400 miles, at the most 23 Let's just say 25 miles a day. If he's really booking it, that's four days for every 100 miles. And so a 16-day journey from the nearest point just to get to Nineveh of just thinking about what he is about to go do. Share the news of God that God is giving to him to this really wicked nation. It's discouraging. It is disturbing. And he's walking in that tension as a prophet. And why I point that out is because so many of us are scared to walk across the cubicle to go have a meal or to go have a conversation with our office buddy or to walk across the cafeteria to share a meal with someone who's a stranger or to engage in conversation when God is calling us to go. And we look at Jonah and we're like, Jonah, how could you do this when God called you to go? And he goes miles and miles in the opposite direction. But Brad has a hard time getting up to go to the kitchen and open the fridge before getting exhausted. Can you imagine walking 400 miles to possibly be killed by the people of Nineveh? And why I point that out is because Jonah, the book of Jonah is really about three things. It's about the people who run, just like Jonah did. It's about the people who repent, just like we're going to learn here in a second. And it's about the God who restores when the first two things happen. And so I want you to turn with me to Jonah chapter 3 for we're going to walk through just the 10 verses. There's so much good stuff in here. And we're going to go real slow and just take it verse by verse. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. I want to stop there for a second. This word proclaim, okay, is going to be the same word that comes up a little bit, um, uh, just a, a few verses down in verse, in verse 8. So I just want you to keep note of that first word, proclaim, just in your mind in verse 2, okay? And proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Again, with that biblical metric, scholars believe you could walk 18 to 23 miles a day. The city of Nineveh from one end to the other was about 60 miles. And so he was walking probably about 20 miles a day proclaiming the word that God gave him. And this was the word that God gave him. Uh, verse 4, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, this is so fascinating. Again, Jonah has just gone on this 400 to 600 at minimum mile journey after being in the belly of a large fish and going the opposite direction. And he comes up with, in Hebrew, a five-word sermon. That's all this is. It's just five simple words. What does he say? He says, uh, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. In verse 5, it's so fascinating what the Ninevites do with it. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them from the greatest to the least 
put on sackcloth. Now, sackcloth is this uh, material, and there's also uh, some translations that's th- that say a little bit later on that they put on sackcloth and then sat in ashes. It was this ritual and, and this way of practice where, where the Israelites or different nations would put on sackcloth and they would lay in ashes to symbolize mourning or grief or repentance, or pain, or suffering, um, or just sitting kind of in that tension of crying out to their higher being. And so uh, when you would lose a loved one, you would often clothe yourself in sackcloth. And so it's so fascinating that this was the response of the people of Nineveh. Again, there's nothing realistic just in understanding. Like when you think of wicked people, the simple sermon that Jonah gave them, and yet God worked through the non-realistic nature of the situation. Transform the hearts. So what was their response to sit in that suffering, to cry out to God, to put on sackcloth and to sit in the ashes of their decisions, of their choices? This is where it gets real fascinating. Verse 6, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. That dust is also ashes. And so, he, just like I said, he does what his people have done. And here's what's so fascinating about what just happened. The nation of Nineveh chose to act against the original law of the land to worship God before the king had proclaimed it. Here in a second. Think about what was at stake for them. Again, Jonah goes and risks his life, uh, at first unwillingly, but he does begrudgingly go to Nineveh, after all, and proclaim what God had shared with him to share. Risks his life. Then the people of Nineveh start to respond before their king offers a proclamation. And they start to repent. And they start to pour their hearts out to God. And they start to sit in the dust and the ashes with sackcloth and grieving their decisions. It's so fascinating. It happens before the king does. They're risking their lives as well, which is part of how you know this is true repentance. So then the word gets to the king. He takes off his robes. And then verse 7, this is the proclamation the king issued in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink that are going into this fast. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently. That, that word urgently in Hebrew, um, it means mightily. It means to scream out, to cry out, to urgently proclaim to God, to, to share your grief, to share your pain, your suffering to God. It's, it's, the king is, is desperately challenging his people of Nineveh to act in a certain way through their, their fasting, but also to proclaim urgently in a way that cries out to God. And then this is what gets is so fascinating. Verse 9, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Verse 10, when God saw that they, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction 
he had threatened. I want to repeat verse 10 again. Put yourself in the people of Nineveh's shoes as we reread this. And think about, again, it's so easy for us when we're reading the biblical stories to think that they're so way out there and, and, and that we're over here living our, our, good, our good lives and we couldn't possibly be as evil or sinful as them. But, but for just a second, put yourself in, in the people of Nineveh's shoes in the times that perhaps you've cried out to God or perhaps you've sat in the ashes or where you've sat in pride or stubbornness just like Jonah did and God still met you in the belly of a fish. As we read through this verse, I, I just want you to think about the character of God. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. It's such, there's so much power here in this chapter. Really, in the, the, this entire book of Jonah, it's filled with so much theology and and. and and uh, takeaways and life transformation. Again, Jonah's about three things. It's about the people who run. It's about the people who repent. And it's about the God who restores when the first two things happen. It's about the God who redeems when people run away. It's about the God who redeems when people repent. It's a really powerful story, but it ends with this idea that I want to kind of just put up on the screen. In chapter 3, God showed compassion even though he knew, dot, dot, dot. And, and I'll explain what that kind of means in relation to Jonah. But I want to walk you through, and, and James, we'll just keep this up here for, for a little bit. I want to walk you through, this is kind of the theme of the entire Bible. If you walk through Genesis all the way to Revelation, this is the theme and the character of God. God shows compassion even though he knows, dot, dot, dot. God showed compassion to Cain in, in Genesis chapter 4 where, where Cain had just killed his brother Abel. And then God comes to Cain and he says, where is your brother? And, and Cain says one of the most powerful questions, am I my brother's keeper? And then God responds with, your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. What have you done? And he punishes Cain. And Cain says, hold on, my punishment is too heavy for me to bear. People will just kill me. And what does God do? God shows compassion on Cain. And he says, you're right. If anyone shows any, uh, does any damage or violence towards you, I will repay them back sevenfold. So he protects Cain, even though Cain had just murdered his brother. And why is this significant? Because Cain then goes on to birth this generation of people who would then be the generation that does so much evil and wickedness that in Noah's life, God ends up resetting the earth and wiping out the generation and the descendants of Cain. God showed compassion to Cain even though he knew he would continue to go on in sin. God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Exodus where we have the second book of the Bible where the Israelites, the people of God, are now enslaved from the Egyptians and, and God sends Moses and Aaron to go and to redeem and rescue Israel 
And he ends up doing so. And in Exodus chapter 10, it's this powerful chapter where you've got praise and worship. And then the very next verse, after that chapter ends, the Israelites start complaining. And in Exodus 32, they start throwing their golden items into a fire and forming this golden calf and bowing down to it because they are tired of waiting on God. God showed compassion to the Israelites even though he knew time and time and time again they would continue to sin and do evil in the eyes of the Lord. God showed mercy toward Rahab. Rahab, this individual who was a prostitute, who had uh, this really, this, this past of just disgrace and pro probably shame, but we also don't know why she was in this line of work. There was probably a long line of abuse that she had to experience because of how women were treated, and God decided to redeem her story and show compassion to her when she was saved from that, even though he knew what she had come from. God showed compassion. God called out Peter. I love this part. God, God called out Peter to walk out of the boat where his disciples are, are all kind of chilling in the storm and the boat is, is, is taking them from one end of the shore to the other and Jesus is walking toward them on water and, and uh, the, the waves are going and, and Jesus calls out to the boat and they're kind of freaking out because there's this ghost walking out at them and, and Peter says, if it is you, God, if it is you, Jesus, then allow me to walk out. And so Jesus says, come, Peter. And so Peter comes out of the boat and he starts to walk. Jesus called Peter to walk out of the boat even though he knew his faith was little and small. He gave him the opportunity to prove himself, to show his faith, and Peter ends up sinking, but Jesus is there to pick him up. And friends, there's so many times that Peter ends up being shown compassion. Jesus knew that Peter would deny knowing him through, uh, multiple times uh, before he is crucified and uh, that the rooster would crow twice if you, if you follow the story all the way to the crucifixion. And Peter says, there's no way I could deny knowing you. And Jesus still shows compassion toward him and then appoints him as one of the ultimate leaders of the early church, even though Peter would go on to betray him. God, oh, friends, this is so powerful. Jesus washed Judas's feet, even though he knew he was his betrayer. You see, when Jesus was going around in the Gospels and he was washing his feet and, and cleaning off, and, and again, this isn't like, they didn't have tennis shoes, okay? They didn't have hey dudes on, all right? They had these, <clears throat> these sandals if they were lucky, if they could afford them. More times than not, they didn't have shoes or any type of clothing on their feet to protect themselves from the dirt and the, the scratches. So Jesus gets down. I'm like, my germaphobe self says, there's the bucket and there's a rag. I'm like, you know, you got this, Peter. <laughs> Peter, this is the teaching moment. And like, here you go. Like, and Jesus gets down and he washes his disciples' feet. An act of humility that many of us don't understand. The king of the world washing a sinner's foot? Nah. And he washed Judas's foot. Why is that fascinating? Well, Judas would then go on to betray him and to hand him over to the guards to be killed just hours later. He showed compassion even though he knew. Then Jesus goes on to let Barabbas walk freely 
even though he knew his son was innocent. God knew that Jesus was innocent, and so he goes and he lets Barabbas walk freely, shows compassion. For those who aren't familiar with the story, Jesus then is arrested, and he's standing there at at Pilate's gate with another war criminal, uh, Barabbas. And it was custom for the Israelites to be allowed to release one of their prisoners. And so Pilate asks the crowd, do you want me to release Jesus, who has done nothing wrong, or do you want me to release Barabbas, who just a few days ago you were, uh, you were having arrested because of a, uh, because of a violent um, just outbreak where he was in charge of just, uh, you know, rampaging the city. And they chose Barabbas. And God allowed that to happen even though he knew Jesus was innocent. Here's how this all comes together and why this is related to the story in Jonah, okay? Because God showed compassion to Nineveh even though he knew they would revert to their evil ways. Some of you might not be familiar with this. Um, turn with me to Nahum chapter 3, verse 19. If you're in your Bible, it's literally just four pages to the right. If you're in your version app, it's just uh, two books down. And if you're... Um, you know, just here hanging out, there's also going to be on the screen. I didn't mean that as an insult, but like, you know, if you're here, just here for the, the community. Here we go. Chapter 3, verse 19. Now, here, here's the fascinating part. The entire book of Nahum was written anywhere from 100 to 150 years after Jonah. And the whole book of Nahum is another prophet Nahum who is sent to Nineveh to say, hey, you know how my brother Jonah, like, called you out, and you all repented, well, you reverted back to your old ways, and so now God's going to smite you. That's pretty much what Nahum is, and this is verse 19. This is what the people of Nineveh were known for after they'd already been shown compassion. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? They went back to their old ways. They were shown compassion, they were shown mercy, and then they went on sinning again. And they were overthrown because of it. God handed them over to their enemies. And here, friends, here's what's so powerful about that. Again, God showed compassion even though he knew Nineveh would go on sinning. And if you're thinking that that line is about Nineveh, it's not. It's about us today. It's about me. It's about you. It's about the whole story of the gospel. It's about the whole scriptures. It's about the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And as we've shared throughout this series, yes, there are consequences for our actions. And as we see with Nineveh, yes, there is compassion within our consequences. But if we continue to live in sin, God will hand us over to our sinful consequences. But the reverse is also true. If we revert to a life of repentance, God will restore and God will redeem. Every single one of us in this room is living a life of sin. Every single one of us. Some of us are fighting it. Some of us are not. Some of us are fighting one day. Some of us are fighting another day. But you're all here for a reason. And I just want you to know that you're not alone. 
And perhaps this message or this series on Jonah can inspire you to surrender your ways to God and allow God to restore and redeem you. Will you pray with me? Hey, God, thank you so much for the series. Thank you for the felt board. Thank you, God, for the people who are here, who are learning, who are leaning in, God. I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would expose our sins. That each of us would feel in our hearts, God, what you are calling us out of. Perhaps it's pride. Perhaps it's shame. Perhaps it's pornography. Perhaps it's adultery. Perhaps it's alcoholism. Perhaps it is greed. Perhaps it is envy. Perhaps it is judgment. Perhaps it is gossip. Perhaps it is selfishness, holding on to our riches. Whatever it may be, God, the list goes on and on and on. God, we surrender this as a church community to you. I lay down my sins at your feet. And I ask, God, that you would restore and show compassion, even though you know I'm going to sin again. And when I do, God, I pray for the courage and the strength to surrender and to ultimately give my life to you over again. In your name I pray. Amen.